Hi, I'm Jennifer Ackerman Haywood, and you're listening to the Craft Sanity Podcast, a weekly interview show about art, craft, and creativity. I produce it in the hope that it will help all of us live long and crafty lives. This episode of Craft Sanity is sponsored by SprayPaintForFabric.com. This is fast-drying fabric paint for projects ranging from stenciling a t-shirt to changing the color of your couch. For more information, visit SprayPaintForFabric.com. Stick around after the show to find out how you can win some of this fabric paint to try at home. So let's get to it, folks. It's time to craft sanity. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 84 of the Craft Sanity Podcast. I'm posting the show on this fine August 24th, 2008. Just days before, Kat Bordy is going to arrive in Grand Rapids, Michigan. She's going to be in town uh, teaching workshops this week at City Knitting in Grand Rapids, and she's doing a book signing Tuesday night from 8 to 9. For those of you who don't know, Kat Bordy likes to knit outside the box, and she likes to do things her way, which is great for all of us. She's been able to find some great ways to revolutionize how knitters make socks, for example. Uh, She's got some great books out there. Our new Pathways for Sock Knitters, A Treasury of Magical Knitting, A Second Treasury of Ma- Magical Knitting, and she's got a couple other books in the works. She's also the author of Treasure Forest, which was the winner of the Nautilus Award for Young Adult Fiction, and she did that a little while ago, and that's actually going to be part of a trilogy. That's the middle book. So it was a great pleasure of mine to get a chance to speak to her because I think she really has a down-to-earth approach to not just knitting, but life in general. Enjoy this chat with Kat Bordy. Well, Kat, I am thrilled to get a chance to talk to you because I think your work is absolutely amazing. Well, tell me a little bit about your creative roots. I mean, when did you feel like you really had a gift when it came to writing and and knitting? Well, um, for me, creativity is sort of a universal experience that can take many forms, from knitting to writing to any almost anything. I find a real commonality in the the way it emerges and moves and beckons you. And so um, I, I'd really have to say that it's just kind of my nature is to be exceedingly curious about things and to want to find multiple pathways into a goal to kind of wiggle my way towards whatever it is that seems appealing. And so I think I've always been this way, but over the years I've developed certain, I guess, media that, that have drawn me more, and really words and fiber are, um, are the, the two that have kept me the longest and will probably keep me forever. Well, I think there are a lot of knitters out there who are very happy to hear you say that. Because <laughs> if you were going to reveal that you're going to go into quilting or something, people might be... Uh, you you know, know, quilters, I mean, I know you have quilters listening, so they should turn this off for one moment. But the, And I have quilted. I think quilting is wonderful. But what I like to say to knitters is we are so lucky we don't chop our materials into little short pieces. <laughs> we can unravel and do it again. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Once you cut the fabric, you pretty yeah. much, uh, you're done. You know, you're yeah. committed to that particular project. Uh, <laughs> well, I don't think any any quilters can dispute that. I'm a quilter myself, um, among yeah. other things. So, yeah. so you discovered in yourself this curiosity and kind of just went with that. It sounds like that that's something that served you very well your entire life because it, it really has. I've always used my hands have always been good hands. They've always um, been happy to investigate and put things together and take them apart and 
and be curious. And um, I have a good relationship with my hand, shall I say. And um, and early on, my mother um, is a, a, a very good seamstress. She knits and can crochet, but she hardly ever did much of it, but enough to teach me. But she actually started me out as a seamstress, and, um, and she had enormous patience for my impatience, which... <laughs> I, now I look back, I can't believe how she man, why she didn't just sell me to the gypsies or something. But she would always make me do things right. She'd make me lay patterns out on fabric and then go get her, and she'd come and say, oh, this is not on the straight of grain, or oh, you'd save fabric if you move this over here, or this is off a little. She always made me do things right, and it made me insane, but it taught me. And I'm very, very grateful to her for being that way. I wasn't then. <laughs> but she she was actually an incredibly wonderful teacher for me because I've taken my understanding of um, working with fabric and garment making and design and so on and used that in knitting, of course. I mean, once you know how to, you know, drape fabric around a body, you turn it into knitting and suddenly it's the equivalent or, or beyond the equivalent of um you know how when you work with either flannel or knitted fabric, mm-hmm. um, they, they behave so much better than most other fabrics. And knitting just takes it farther where you, you create fabric to fit. Um, and early on, I discovered Barbara Walker's Knitting from the Top, which I think if people have one knitting book in their library, probably it should be that one, unless they're people who don't want to think at all. <laughs> she she has engineered, and this was in the early 70s she did it, when there were maybe 20 knitting books in print in this country instead of 20,000 or whatever <laughs> we have now. Right. Um, and she engineered how to knit um, seamlessly around any body part, is the way I like to put it, and to do it skillfully and intelligently and beautifully. And, um, so she really influenced me early on. Well, and it sounds like you've taken it a little bit farther with um, some of your mathematical uh, yeah. magic that you've woven into this fabric that you're knitting. It's really incredible. And well, Have you always been good at math? Well, no. Um, people think... <laughs> oh, I assume people that. You had me mis- fooled. <laughs> people have lots of misperceptions about me. It's a lot of fun to explode them. Yeah, well, um, let's do that today. It, okay. When I was in 7th and 8th grade, I was, you know, one of those horrible, sullen, pre-teenage people who just all they want to do is make everyone mad at them and and a good way to make people mad was to get really bad grades and I didn't I thought math was disgusting I I had I had D's in math or maybe even an F somewhere oh goodness and then I got to high school and had geometry and instantly I was a straight A student I was instantly sort of this little math Einstein and I thought this then this must not be math this could not be math because I love it. I mean, I could eat it. It was like candy. <laughs> and it's because geometry is, the, in a way, to me, it's the true math. It's about shape and how you fit shapes together and what happens if you make this shape longer or bigger here, how it moves the shape next to it. It's, it's kinesthetic math. It's the kind of math that children love. Um, but we don't start out with that. We start out with numbers that are divorced from what they represent and expect people to swallow that whole and regurgitate it. And mm-hmm. that's insane. So um, geometry suddenly completely captivated me. So for one whole year, I 
I had the time of my life. And then I was lucky enough to have the same math teacher for the rest of high school math. And she knew she had me, so she kept me, even when we weren't doing geometry. <laughs> but but math is um, math has a bad reputation, and it's because it's taught wrong, in my opinion, and um, and it's divorced from what it represents. I, I think math is so appealing and such fun that most people would would have it as a hobby if it were taught correctly. No, I know. No, when you you know, got into this geometry class, did you know then you were going to eventually end up teaching math? Oh, no. No. (laughs) (laughs) I was only about 14. (laughs) I didn't have any clue. I thought I would probably be a criminal or something. Oh, my goodness. Criminals are so creative. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. (laughs) So so how did you, so what happened next after high school? And were you knitting this whole time, like from eight years on? In high school, I was mainly sewing. I actually... um, Somewhere along the line in high school, I started making, I don't know if they even make kettle cloth anymore. It's a, it's a, the most unflexible cloth ever, and it was very popular when I was at that age in high school. It would have been in the 60s. And I, I started a business making kettle cloth swimsuits of all things. Really? And I, really? Had, I had, I had, I took custom orders. They were mostly two-piece swimsuits. Um, and they, they must have worked or people wouldn't have kept ordering them. But I, all, all the girls in my school would be ordering them. So I, I earned money making sewing swimsuits out of this inflexible cotton polyester material. Were they comfortable suits? I, well, I, they must have been, but I can't remember. I mean, when I think about it, I think it's not possible. But, but I know I did a lot of it, so it had to have worked. Um, and I was knitting, but I was mainly sewing. At that time, but I was doing some knitting, and my knitting involved following patterns. But at that point, I was not um, well following patterns and changing a little bit here and there. Not not saying I think I will make something a brand new shape that no one's ever done. I wasn't up to that yet. <laughs> Although I was in sewing, I was doing anything I wanted in sewing. Yeah, and so um, how much would a kettle class swimsuit go for? I wish I could tell you, but I don't remember. <laughs> Whatever the nineteen sixties going price would have been. <laughs> Probably twenty five dollars. Wow, I don't know. Yeah, well, that's something else. So you get a little custom fashion business there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then so, where did you go to college? I went to UC Santa Barbara. Okay, and uh, study education there, or would it? No, um, I I believe it or not, I have a degree in Russian. Really? Yeah, yeah. Not too many people have that degree back then, or or even now, I guess. Um, what it was is I had had Russian in high school, and I, I went to a wonderful high school, and I loved literature. I mean, I loved words, as I do now. And in college, I thought I'd be an English major and continue with all the literature, and I found in a great big university, the literature classes were really dead compared to what I was used to. But in the um, Russian department, the Russian literature were small classes, and Russian literature is very passionate. So I thought, oh, I will take English literature. I will become a literature major by doing it in Russian. So that's what I did. Well, that's a creative approach. And then... Well, (laughs) I guess you could call it that. Not something everybody thinks of. (laughs) So so you... uh, took this creative approach to your education, and then what happened after you graduated? Well, let's see. Um, I, I went to the Soviet Union in the early 70s, 
and um, was horrified because actually this this answers the whole creativity question. What horrified me most was that the people were fabulous and there was no creativity, um, no creative um, arena for them to do anything in because they were really, really afraid of the government then. And um, they, they just, there were just no creative avenues for these wonderful people. And, I, and to me, that felt, it was so shocking that I actually um, went into a depression for a year after that, and I'd never been depressed. It was sort of like, just like, I'd, I'd been introduced to the dark side of the world or something. People Jeez. who were that repressed. So was it after you got back that you felt depressed about yeah. it, or while you were there? Okay. Well, even while I was there, I couldn't wait to leave. How long were you there? Seven weeks. Okay. Um, I, I traveled with other other students of Russian so that we we could all speak the language to some degree, and we we traveled rather freely. We we weren't you know we, we were on our own a lot in a way that the government probably didn't know. Um, <laughs> so we saw the real we saw what it was really like. Yeah, and you were just really disheartened. It sounds like by what you oh, saw. Oh yeah, disheartened is a good word. Yeah, my goodness. So you came back and just felt and that weighed you down. It sounds like that experience. Yeah, it did. Actually, I came back and I spent a year the year when I was really disheartened um, as an upholstery seamstress and learned about how to do upholstery, which is a whole art in itself. Wow. Um, and and that taught me how to use industrial sewing machines. And then a few years later, I started making um, what are called artist teddy bears, or they were then. I don't know if they're still called that. I actually ended up making 5,500 fully articulated sort of shaved snout bears that were sold all over the, all over the country, but, but beyond the country as well, and ended up in museums. Wow. And this was before people were really doing that. I was one of the first people in the country to make a living at that, actually. Wow. And then, of course, you do any one thing for too long, and you ruin your muscles that you're using. And so (laughs) so there was an end to that. So how long did you do that? I did that for 10 years. Oh, you said for 10 years. Wow. And did you have a name for your bears? Yeah, the chocolate bear. The chocolate bear. Yeah. Because I figured people like bears, and they like chocolate, and so put those words together, and you get it. A good name. So did they look the same, or were they all one of a kind? No, well, they were different sizes. They all looked like they were from the same family, you could say, but they were very realistic. They weren't cutesy-pootsy. Mm-hmm. I don't like that kind of thing. Um, but they were they were very appealing, and um, collectors bought them. They mostly went to adults. Wow. And um, and I, I was featured in, in er- Teddy Bear and Friends magazine as an magazine that I think is still going. I, I was featured in there a number of times and in books. and It's a whole part of my life that very few knitters seem to have connected with. It's very few knitters have ever figured out that that was me. Wow. Well, it's, not, it's, it's, it's really interesting, too, but there's this common thread all the way through with everything you're saying is that you extremely creative person where you don't really, um, not really looking to apply for the job that's right there, but more or less creating the job oh, for yeah. yourself. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think that's wonderful. <laughs> I, it, it's fun. <laughs> it, it means that there's there are more things coming that I don't know about yet. Yeah, yeah, well, that's, yeah, because some people stall out, like they don't. Know. Oh no, I, I, yeah. I doubt. You don't I'm not stall likely out. To stall out. No, I don't think so. Not at all. You are the least in danger, the least likely to stall out. I'd say. My goodness. So you did this. The bear. And what what inspires you to make bears? Well, what it was is, um, I'm I'm just always so interested in how things work, and I had come across an, a book that had an x-ray of an articulated bear, and I'd always wondered how 
stuffed animals that were articulated were, you know, what was going on mechanically inside. And it was pretty straightforward. It was fender washers and cotter pins and all the joints. And so I, I was married at the time, and my husband was a contractor, and he had, a, you know, a big shop full of every possible tool you could ever need. So I went in there and found some um, cotter pins and fender washers and tried to make a bear. But he his cotter pins were for putting tractor tractors together. Oh, wow, they yeah. They were huge. And I, I, decided, I didn't know that they were so big. I thought they were normal ones. And I, I'm pretty strong, but in the end I thought, I'm not strong enough to make a bear. <laughs> I couldn't turn those cotter pins. Oh, wow. And it took a couple months later, I made a couple bears, and then a couple months later I realized there were other cotter pins. I went to a hardware store and bought normal ones and could turn them with my little finger. <laughs> so anyway, that, that led to many, many bears. Yeah, you said five and a half thousand? Yeah. Wow. And all, you made all every, registered and numbered. And, and you made every single one. Yeah, every single thing. I'm not very good at delegating to other people. I'm I'm occasionally someone will tell me I'm a control freak. <laughs> <laughs> but I like to characterize it differently. I I think of myself as someone who I I just want to be there when things are happening because I want to see what's happening. And and if it moves in a certain way, I want to go there with it. And you can't give it to someone else and be there. Right. I have kind of. I don't want to give up the fun. I have the kind of the same mindset, and I call it committed and invested. Are some terms I used to describe. I can understand. Puts it in a very positive light. You know. Oh yeah. (laughs) Because control freak just has such a negative connotation. Yeah, it sounds like you're trying to stop things. Right. And and but no, I can understand that. Yeah, especially yeah. if you have this thing that you love to be a part of, it, it's hard to stand back and, you know, uh, and let other people do the work when you want to be right in there, too. So so that's wonderful. So all those bears. And then what? at what point did you decide, okay, enough, enough bear? Well, bear I making. didn't decide the, my muscles decided for me. Oh. I got to the, it was turning those cotter pins and cutting the fur, which had to be done by hand. Um, I, I used, didn't use real fur, but I used. I was the first person in this country to begin importing um, the really good fake fur from West Germany that had guard hairs and an undercoat and everything. It's now widespread among bear makers in this country. But I, I, pre- I very early on, I figured out how to pretend I was a big company and contact people in Europe and order large amounts of things as if though I was... 12 people and um, then, <laughs> in a large building. <laughs> so if you sound convincing, I guess it doesn't yeah, matter. I, 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 I could probably sell used cars. Oh, <laughs> that's funny. Maybe that's next, you know. No, no, no. <laughs> I know nothing about cars. Um, but let's see, what question was I answering? So you, we were talking about just kind of tracing your, your what happened after college. So we went through the 10 years dedicated to bear making. Oh, right. Then, How did I quit making bears? Yeah. It, yeah. My, my muscles, I couldn't. I could no longer, if I was driving, I wanted to change lanes. I had to move my entire body to check the other lane. Oh, my goodness. And that was my clue that I had to change what I was doing. So I did. What did I do? I I went from there to being an editor. I I did editing work for a friend who was working on a book. And and I, I just sort of was at loose ends for a while because I wasn't sure what I wanted to do next. And then I I decided to go back to school and get a teaching credential. So how old were you when you you went back to school? Let's see. I was about 40, I think, or or, or maybe 39. And my daughter was not yet in school. She was in kindergarten. 
10, I think. No, she was in first grade. At any rate, I went back to school because I thought, well, because I, I love kids. I love kids. If, if, if adults were eliminated from the world and we only had kids and I was the only adult, I'd be perfectly happy. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I've always, so I had always actually wanted to be a teacher. And um, so I went back to school so that then I would have the same vacations as my daughter as well. I just thought, well, this makes sense. Yeah, that's a great and, idea. Yeah, so I got an elementary teaching degree and um, began teaching in the islands where I live now, the San Juan Islands, which are about an hour's ferry ride off the coast in Washington. We could kayak to Canada if we were crazy. (laughs) If you were crazy. Yeah, you might die on the way. Oh, goodness. Yeah. (laughs) About 10 miles. So it might not be worth the the risk, but... um, No, I wouldn't actually do it. Yeah. Well, if someone wants to go for a Guinness with the world records, if they haven't already tried it, you know, don't blame us if it doesn't go well. (laughs) (laughs) So you you, uh, worked on your degree and uh, got certified, and then you were teaching, and how long were you teaching? Well, I taught for about 10 years. I don't usually do anything more than 10 years. It starts changing. (laughs) (laughs) And so in that time, you were teaching math? I was teaching, um, yes, but I I taught everything from um, first grade through eighth grade. And but I taught what's called Math Olympiad, um, which is in this state and some other states. There are versions of it all over the country, but it's basically what I call the dessert of math, where you're you're doing things like geometry and probability, and you actually do all strands of math. But I taught it in a way that it was an after-school extracurricular thing. I had kids literally frothing at the mouth to get in the door. It was really? more fun than anything in the entire universe. And wow. I had, I had kids who couldn't do math who wanted in the door. And they get in the door, and every once in a while, they figure something out no one else could figure out. Um, it was just thrilling. Um, what an excellent experience for a student, too, especially a oh. student who doesn't think they're good at math. Yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful. So you were able to, sound like, rediscover that excitement that you felt when you were in your oh, geometry yeah. class. Hey, and teach definitely. that to others. That's great. Definitely. definitely. That's really great. So you did that. And now I, I read somewhere, or maybe I heard it somewhere, that you um, would, in, would bring knitting into your classroom. Is that- yeah. The last couple years I was teaching, I was um, teaching humanities, which included ancient history. And I had a principal who was really great because he really trusted me and and just assumed that whatever I did, no matter how strange it was, it made better sense than most people, <laughs> um, which was mostly true. <laughs> Maybe not always. But anyway, I, so I was able to, you know, ancient history, if you took spinning and plying a fiber out of history, we wouldn't have history. We wouldn't have had sails or clothes or tents or ropes to, you know, migrate with a million things. So Mm -hmm. I was easily able to tell him, well, I'm going to incorporate um, sort of fiber history into ancient history and do a lot of hands-on things and and work math into it and and science into it and everything else. And he was very happy about that. So um, I and I, we have a good textile guild in the islands. So I got um, textile guild members to come help me get the kids started knitting and, and some spinning and so on. And once the kids learned, then they taught the other kids. And and the result was that this was seventh grade. And now seventh graders um, are very conscious of their social status. Um, mm-hmm. It's one of the most difficult ages, probably. Oh, yeah. 
And boys, you would have thought, would have said, hey, we're not doing that. That's for girls. But since we live on this island, by some miracle, none of the boys had ever heard that knitting was not for them. So I had no resistance from the boys. It That's was wonderful. So, uh, it was just unbelievable that, that it was that way. And so I got to see what happens when you hand boys and girls about age 13 um, fiber knitting and, and basic tools and a little bit of instruction. And the boys were in particular amazing. They, I never had a single boy say, would you do it for me, ever. Mm-hmm. Um, they would, they'd come to me and they'd say, how do I make the whole thing go to the left? And I'd tell them how to do an SSK. And how, before I They'd be before I'd be done explaining. They'd be walking away because they they just got the idea and they didn't want to hear the rest from me. They'd do it themselves, and off they go. They were very architectural, and um, and the girls were great too. But they but they I hate to say it. They acted like girls. Um, you know, they were making little friendship bracelets for each other and little headbands, and they were being um, girly. What were is, the boys making? They were making things like shoes. And, um, wow. and boxes and, and hats. And they, they were just making shapes. And then they'd look at the shape and say, what could the shape become? And, and uh, I had one boy who had knit a rectangle, and he said to me, I want to make this into a hat. And I said, sure, you know, tomorrow I'll bring you a tapestry needle and sew up the side and close the top. And he kind of looked at me. And, and then I started teaching. And, and I had a rule that the kids could knit any time they didn't need to be using their hands or, or reading. And halfway through the class, I looked back, and there he was. Um, his name's Felipe. I said, Felipe. He was wearing it as a hat. I said, Felipe, you, how'd you do that? And he said, I used my pen. And I said, you used your pen? He said, yeah. I said, I said, see me after class and tell me about it. So he stopped, and he said, yeah, I just hooked the yarn through the loop on the pen, and he sewed it up using his pen. Oh, wow. And I said, I said, that's awesome, Felipe, but I'm going to bring you a needle tomorrow just so you see what that looks like. And he said, I don't need a needle. I have a pen. <laughs> said, I'm bringing you one anyway. <laughs> so the next day, I handed it to him, and he took it out of my hand and held it, and he looked at it as if though, you know, it was the beginning of history, and he said, wow. <laughs> he could see it was a better tool than a right. pen. Right, yeah. It was so wonderful. It was so wonderful. It was so fresh and clean. And the other thing was that I had the kids, they were knitting and spinning and doing a little weaving and untangling yarn all day long, and um, it made them into kind people who had no sense of social status. They had no sense of who's cool and who isn't. Um, it, it made them into extraordinary human beings, and it made kids who were ADD not ADD whatsoever while they were knitting. Um, it, it was the most revolutionary, um, transformative thing in the classroom that I could have ever hoped for. It, it completely erased all management problems. You know, I, I think it's wonderful that you had that experience and can talk to people now about that observation um, because the biggest criticism that people have when they see people knitting and just the thought, there are people out there who don't knit mm-hmm. and think that it, what a horrible idea to have kids knitting during class. Where's the decorum? Yeah, or that they're just not paying attention. But 
The thing that is so wonderful is I noticed that I tend to be, well, you might have picked up on it, that I'm a little chatty. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I actually find that I'm actually, I think, kinder to the people I'm in company with when we're having a conversation because I listen better and give other people a chance to talk. And, you know, I just find that, um, and I also absorb information with a, uh, a deeper sense. Knitting really, and I find with crocheting too, it's a repetition and you kind of get unless you're working on a very complicated pattern of course mm-hmm. you can't pay attention to someone speaking to you but if it's just you know just getting something done a scarf or a pair of socks or something I find that I just feel like I'm more in tune with kind of what's going I'm, I'm absorbing the information but um, did you find that the students seem to to listen better to you oh yes um, I could teach material that was you know not particularly thrilling, and I had them completely listening. They were just, you know, knitting and crocheting and these hand, repetitive hand um, processes, they they keep you out of your own way. Mm-hmm. They, they settle that fiddly part of yourself. And so I had, um, I had extraordinary learning going on in the classroom. Why it was you, a miracle. What do you, I mean, what do you think it is about the act of knitting that, that cr- it allows people to kind of just um, stay out of their way, as you said? Um, I, I wonder about that a lot. I know there's a fair bit of brain research going on in this area, not completely focused on knitting, but on um, repetitive hand-eye movements that are, um, you know, repetitive in the sense that you don't have to be thinking a great deal about what you're doing, but that it kind of um, calibrates you, almost like a metronome. Um, and Stephanie Perl-McPhee has actually done a lot of research on the research, and she can speak eloquently about this. And, um, and well, I'll have to get her on the show next. And um, Oh, yeah. She's she'll, been on my wish list for a while. so Yeah, she'd love to talk about it because she, she really has got it nailed down well. Um, the other thing is, on my website, I have a free download for teachers or, or parents who want to give it to their kids' teachers. Um, it is a um, lesson, sort of a, a K-12 K lesson plan for integrating fiber arts into the entire curriculum and talking about how to bring administrators on board and convince people that this is really um, helpful for education. Wow, what a gift yeah. you've given well, it's yeah, so that's important. Wonderful. It's so important. And that's so if wonderful. people just go to my website to the free patterns page, um, they will find it a, a link to it up there, and they can just use it all they want. Well, excellent. I will uh, direct people that way. Good. That's fantastic. So, um, and what was the name of the school that you were teaching at? Um, Friday Harbor Elementary School and Friday, Friday Harbor Middle School. Okay, so it's elementary and middle. So you kind of yeah. floated between both, or no? I, I started out in elementary and moved to the middle school. The knitting I was doing in the middle school, but there are other teachers who were teaching knitting in the elementary and the high school. This is these are knitting islands. <laughs> and this was it. Was this the island that, on which you lived, or was this yeah. you, okay? Yeah, I still live. You here. still live. Okay. Yeah. And what? And tell me the name of it again. Well, the island is called San Juan Island. San Juan Island. But but the town is Friday Harbor. And the group of islands is called the San Juan Islands, so it can be confusing. Okay, but you're actually on San Juan Island. Okay. Yeah. And how big is the island? Well, um, I think we're around 70 square miles, which sounds bigger than it is. It doesn't take more than 20 minutes to drive from one point to any other point. Um, and we have about six to 7,000 full-time residents. Wow. And how long have you lived there? Um, going on 
I think I'm getting close to 20 years now. Wow. Yeah. It must be wonderful to live on an island. Oh, it is. It is. Do you have a view of the water? No, I'm in the middle of the island, but... um, but I have a pond, and there's water. There are ponds all over the island, and and I I'm, I see the the actual salt water probably once a day. There's water everywhere. Yeah, what a great! And it sounds like you're very inspired by your surroundings. Oh, oh yes, oh yes. Okay, lots so we, of wildlife. And so we we've we've wound up to. Um, we're getting closer to the present day here. Um, okay. <laughs> the, ten year, the ten years of teaching, and then um, at what point did you decide? You know what? I'm going to do something else. I'm going to. Well, let's see. Oh, it was actually what it was. Is in my last couple of years of teaching, I wrote Sock Soar on two circular needles, and I didn't even know I was writing a book. I just came up with. I, I just figured there had to be some way to replace double pointed needles with circular needles. Mm-hmm. And I initially thought you needed three circular needles. I thought you needed two to hold the knitting and one to kind of come in there like your extra double pointed needle right, and, and do the take knitting. over. Right. So I was in great danger of having written a book called Sock Soar on Three Circular Needles. Oh, yeah, I'm that so would be quite different. I know. It, would be, <laughs> it wouldn't have done so well. <laughs> Fortunately, I got past that. Um, <laughs> And how did you, at what point did you discover, like, okay, this lose this third circular? I don't remember the, the moment, but I remember, you know, thinking, duh. <laughs> it's, in a way, so, you know, things that, that are obvious can be hidden if you are looking at them through the eyes of another method. And I was looking at it through the eyes of the DPN method. Mm-hmm. And I had to, I just had to outgrow that. It took me one month from when I decided it could be done to when I figured out how simple it really was. I mean, I, feel, I consider that one of the most um, brainless months of my life, <laughs> when my brain must have been sick. Because <laughs> it, it's actually so simple. Um, you know, each needle has half of the stitches of, of the round piece of knitting, and each needle knits its own stitches with its own ends. There's nothing in the way of it. It's just... Once you get it, you just say, duh. Well, that's how everything is once you finally, finally sinks in. But then you kind of kick yourself because you're like, I can't believe it took me this long to figure it out. But I know I've seen, I think, one book about knitting with circulars um, since yours. But were were you the first to come up with this? Um, No, it it turns out I wasn't. But I I didn't know about other people. Um, um, Joyce Williams, who is in, I think, Wisconsin, had apparently been teaching it for some years and apparently even had a video that had something on it, maybe, that she'd never published, and I didn't know about it. And at just the point where I was getting the book ready to go to the printer, she did publish something about it, I believe in Interweave Net, a one-page article. And so in my book, I did um, talk about her article. Okay. But, But... I did come up with it independently of her. And then over the years, I've occasionally had emails from people who say, oh, I've been doing that for years. So. Well, and that's, well, that's part of the creative process, too, is that, you know, people kind of discover things kind of on their own, you know, in their own way. And then mm-hmm. the cool part is when people publish their work, whether it be in a interweave article or a book or you just teach a workshop, we all can build on what we've learned and, you know, what other people have kind of done before us. And I know in one of your books that I can't remember which one, you do credit all the knitters that have come before you and all the people that have, you know. Um, I think that's my new pathways. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. it's, um, 
you know, and I think that's really great that, that you do that because you're, um, well, the stuff you're doing is really fantastic and groundbreaking in many respects. Um, it's really nice to see that you're, you know, you're, that's important to you. I, that came across to me right away. That you're, oh, it is. Because if, if, if there wasn't all that before me, I would have been starting at the beginning, and I never would have reached this point. It, it had to all be there before me so that I could um, go forward from it. And and I love to think about how within the ne- I bet within ten years I have some predictions. Um, one is that crocheters and knitters will quit thinking that they're two different species, and we'll, there'll be a lot of crossover where people will suddenly realize how cro- crochet belongs in knitting. Like you know, suddenly you're knitting along, and suddenly you do something with a crochet hook that you couldn't do with a knitting needle, and then you keep going and so on. I think that's and, fantastic. Oh yeah, I'm, yeah. And, and in fact, the Denise interchangeable needles are coming out with crochet tips you can stick on the same same equipment so that you could literally be knitting along and instantly switch to a, get a hook on the end of your needle and wow. then go right back to your needle without moving anything around. Well, that's the, so, that's so a that's sign. Going to, yeah, that's and a that's, sign. that'll be out, I think, in winter. And that means that within five years of that, the whole thing will open up and people will start exploring. So I'm excited about that. And the other thing is, Someone, maybe me, but I hope other people, will figure out another thing you can do with circular needles. Because circular needles, I believe, hold a lot of possibility that we have not noticed yet. And I can't wait. There will be something you can do with them that you couldn't do any other way. How long I don't know what it is. How long have circulars been around? Well, they've been around for a long time, since like maybe the 20s. But the original ones were um, very, in, in fact, until Addie Turbo um, were brought to this country, which I believe was in the early 80s or possibly very late 70s, I think it was in the 80s, there were the only circulars available were stiff and usually bad joins, and the cables were so stiff and springy that they were in your way and they would keep you from wanting to use them. Um, and they wouldn't have lent themselves to um, knitting on two circulars because you would have had horrible ladders at the needle intersections because of the, the stiffness of the cables. So as but the equipment improved, that it, Yeah, the door. equipment allowed for the evolution. And um, the, the Addy Turbos um, were brought to this country by Ingrid Spassell, who noticed them when she was visiting her mother, who was very old, and, and Ingrid saw an Addy Turbo circular needle in a shop and wanted it, but with her German frugality, she couldn't buy it because her mother had that size needle at home. And she <laughs> went home and had a dream about it that night and went out sort of against every bit of German in her and bought it. <laughs> and then they started importing them to this country. So wow. Ingrid Scassell, if she had not had that experience, I might not have be in the knitting world even because it was the equipment that allowed me to say, look what you can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you're not this kind of person. I just, I, I, you know, I haven't met you in person, but just reading your work and also talking to you, you're not someone who just wants to knit back and forth. Oh, Wait, no. You know, I mean, just, you want to push it and see what can I want to have fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I and mean, that's great. And I'm thankful that you that you take that approach um, and are the, the legion, and so are the legions of fans you have out there, you know. Um, so you, you, you were working on this first book. You're still teaching. Yeah, and, and, and so I, I published it, and it was self-published. You came up with your own publishing Company and that's the pretty. I mean, that's that's something else because not only do you decide, okay, I'm doing the book, 
I'm going to publish this myself. I mean, this is a huge, a huge commitment, and, you know, you, um, it's amazing what you've been able to do since then. I know, but see, I did it all innocently. If I had known where it was leading, I would have said, yeah, right. Let's <laughs> not even try. But since it just kind of kept, you know, rolling forward and I kept following it, I could do it. I had to, I had to do it in ignorance or I couldn't have done it, I think. I, I had to not know how far it would go. So it and was, I still don't know how far <laughs> it's going to go. Well, but, but at any rate, the Fox Soar immediately began earning me a significant amount of money. And I thought, well, yeah, this will last another two weeks if I'm lucky. But it just kept going. And at the same time, I'd been invited to write a novel by um, Namaste Publishing in Vancouver, B.C., mm-hmm. who are the publishers of Eckhart Tolle's The Power of Now. Wow. Um, and it, it's a long, long story, but I knew Eckhart then and um, and Connie Kello, his publisher. And they had both encouraged me to write a novel um, that, that sort of took some of Eckhart's, you know, sort of the, the essence of The Power of Now and... Um, brought it into a, a novel form where it would sort of just sort of, you know, come through the novel without being terribly obvious. And so I, I ended up taking a leave of absence from my teaching in order to keep selling Soxor and to work on the novel, which I really had to not be um, teaching school to work on a novel because teaching school is the only thing I've ever done that used up every bit of my creativity by the end of the day where I was on empty at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was nothing left for the novel. So I, I did finish the novel. It was published. It's still in print. It's in its, I don't know, fifth or sixth printing right now. Um, and um, and then continued writing knitting books, much to my surprise, because I hadn't expected to write more knitting books. Wow. And and the novel is a trilogy, but um, which I didn't plan. It just you know, there's a lot of, I had a lot of backstories and a lot of front stories, if you want to call it front stories. So it turns out that the novel is actually the middle one of the trilogy. And the trilogy is in a Mobius sequence, which means that the middle is actually um, in a continuous stream with what comes before and what comes after. So wow. someday when I quit writing knitting books, I will finish the trilogy. So you've, you have one book out right so far and you, yeah. you plan to write two more. Well, I, I'm hoping I do, yeah. because I'd like to read them. <laughs> the only way I get to read them is if I write them. Yeah. Well, so the knitting, the knitting books have, are keeping you busy. So you did, the first one, you said you're in how many printings of the first book? Oh, gosh. I think I'm in the 14th printing. Wow. And so what was your first run, your first question run? First run was 2000, because, okay. and I thought I'd have them for 10 years, and they were gone in a month. And hey, was that a huge financial commitment? Um, I thought so. I thought I was, you know going to have them in my closet forever. And what made you want to self-publish and not, you know, try to get oh, a book Oh, it's to my you? independent nature. I didn't want anyone telling me what to do. I, I don't like to be told what to do. I like <laughs> to tell myself what to do. <laughs> <laughs> I can relate a little bit to that as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so you just decided, you know, I'm, I'm going to go it alone here. I'm going to do this. Yeah. And um, how long did you work on the first book? Um, about a year, I think. And then did you have friends in the publishing business that could help you kind of navigate no. things? No. No. So well, I, I, I had someone on the island who um, did the cover for me. A, friend, a photographer friend did the photography. And it was rather early. It was, 19, it was 2001. 
And it was rather early in the desktop publishing world. You know, not everyone knew as much as they do now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I did the layout and then had it tweaked. I was working in PageMaker, which no one uses anymore. <laughs> and um, at any rate, it worked. And it, it you know, it, it, I've so, I don't know how, how many over 100,000 copies there are now. I, I wow. That is awesome. I Congratulations. Know. That's wonderful. It's, unbe- it's really, really, um, I, I mean, I, if, if I woke up and realized it was all a dream, I'd say, well, that was obvious. It had to have been a dream. <laughs> You're not dreaming. Otherwise, I'm, well, I'm in the Either that or you are, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that's it's wonderful. And I love the fact that you did this, that you did do it independently. You know, yeah. I think that's um, something that, you know, it's a gamble because obviously you could, st- I mean, you, you ran the risk of still having that first copy of your first book piled up in your house. Um, yeah. But you, yeah. but you didn't have that outcome and the, quite the opposite. And uh, how many knitting books now since uh, you, if you're total? Um, I have four knitting books and I'm working on a fifth. And when will the fifth be out? Oh, it'll be at least a year. It takes uh, it takes so much longer than you want it to to do a book. Um, in fact, what I've determined after doing this many books is that when the book appears to be ninety five percent done, you are actually halfway there. Really? Yeah, yeah. That the final five percent is when you re- have so many realizations and you um, there's so much fine tuning and just so much left to do. This is a knitting book. If it were a Something else, maybe it wouldn't be that way. But I also um, mentor um, knit designers who want to self-publish and do it really well and do things of enduring value to the knitting world. Okay. So and so I, I pass that. I, um, I'm, I'm working with a lot of other designers as well. So I, I, I have a lot of perspective on how things work. So you do, do you teach workshops on that? or uh, that... Once a year I, I do a, it's called the Visionary Retreat and I, I have many, many applicants and only taking six new people this year, um, people from previous years return and, and collaborate while I'm working with the new people and then we all work together another part of each day. That's great. So it's, it's, an, it's an incredible sort of like a, a brain a brain trust of, of knitters. It's, it's an extraordinary thing. And it's all knitters. Yeah, all knitters, because that's what, I'm in, you know, what I know about. And these are all people who have aspirations to self-publish? Yes. So they're working on yes. projects? Yes, and they so- include people who published with big publishers, but realize that they want more control of this product and process. And what would you say as far as... Um, you know, when you, I think for a lot of people, there's the validation when you have a book deal with a big publisher that, mm-hmm. you know, they come to you or an agent, you know, you're working with an agent, and they say, we, mm-hmm. we really think you're fabulous and we want to, you know, you want, want you to do a book with us. And people are like, oh, especially if there's your first book. It's very right. exciting. It's wonderful. And of course, I'm not speaking from experience. I have not published a knitting book or mm-hmm. any other book, but mm-hmm. um, I've interviewed a lot of published authors. And, um, but I hear though from a lot of people is just the amount of work they put into it and they feel like they never quite get, um, you know, there are exceptions, of course, but it seems like mm-hmm. there's a lot of people who put a lot of work into it, and the, um, they don't really get uh, the monetary reward is not really no, they don't very great because, at all. Because, and it, it's not that the big publishers are, are not behaving properly. It's that it's the nature of the beast. Um, they have, um, you know, they're corporations, and they have, they, they have a lot of staff, and they, there's just so much going on, and they're not really knitters if we're talking about knitting books. Mm-hmm. And so things are diluted down and decisions are made about the book that have to do with knitting by someone who doesn't know knitting. 
and things go out of print if things don't sell, and um, and it's tra- it's kind of tragic. On the other hand, there are some books that are done really well, and and I do sometimes steer people towards particular publishers. I sort of act as an informal, um, unpaid agent just for the fun of it, mm-hmm. networking um, designers and publishers when it seems appropriate. And But most of the time I tell people, do it yourself, do it yourself, you'll be so much happier. And typically for, for the listeners out there that might be thinking, you know, maybe their dream is to self-publish um, a book, um, whether it be in knitting or something else, how much can they expect, like financially, how much does it take to be able to do a project like this and do that first run of It depends on how much professional help you need. Um, it, you know, if someone who can do the the writing, the layout, um, so photography mo- most well. of most of the actual desktop publishing end of it themselves, and do it well because if it's going to be done poorly, you should have someone else do it. <laughs> right. Um, and then they probably should have a um, professional photographer because that's really important, and and that person should probably do the color management. Um, it all depends on how much color you have, you know, how many pages. Hardcover, softcover, blah blah blah. But um, if you go and and an initial print run for a first-time author probably shouldn't be more than four thousand because if they're not known, it's hard to say how many will sell. Right. Um, but probably somewhere in the neighborhood of fifteen to twenty thousand dollars if they're going to print four thousand for all their costs. Okay. Um, but that's a real vague figure. I may be off by five to ten thousand dollars. Okay, and if it does well and they sell the books, I mean, if it does well, and it, it, I, the way I judge potential um, knit designers who work with me is the book has to be of enduring value to the knitting community. Something like Elizabeth Zimmerman. Right. Of course, She's we don't have another Elizabeth Zimmerman, but right. her work will be in print as long as people can read and have hands. Right. And I look for people. I've never found anyone like her, but I'm always looking for people who whose work will never age, um, who who put spirit into their work, and who who um, whose books I would want in my library. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not I'm not looking for something that that imitates anything else. And so I, I've I, I've been I've worked with some really wonderful people, and I have and they're. It's very exciting. So, are there authors that we? Um, I'm sure there are plenty of people we recognize. Would you, anybody that has book a book out? Well, most recent? recently, um, Janelle Wademan, um, the Eclectic Soul, oh, Soul S O L A, a new sock book. She's um, an amazing spinner and dyer and designer, and this is the first of. She's got two or three more books in the line. Awesome. Um, she also works full time and is getting a PhD in some kind of biochemical, something or other, very tricky. So, <laughs> wow. Um, she's busy. <laughs> and it then seems like another, the most creative people are, though, very busy, though. It's, yeah. Yeah. Okay, and then yeah. another... But her book is doing really, really, really well. She's, I think she's in the third printing already, and the first printing came out in June, I believe. Oh, my goodness. Wow. She's doing real well. Everything I told her would happen has happened. And she's That's very great. happy about it. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> Well, congratulations to her. Yeah, yeah. And then you said there's you someone else you were going to name. Well, and the next book from our group that will be out will be uh, Margaret Fisher has a book called 
hope I get the title right, um, Seven Things That Will Make or Break a Sweater, based on a class that she's taught for years. And, um, and it's a very, a very good handbook for people who want their sweaters to succeed. And I think it's yeah. great, too, that the fact that, you, as you said, you want books, the ones that are going to be most successful are the ones that are going to be withstand the test of time. Like yeah. something that's going to be a reference, like something that people can go to and pull off the shelf and be like, ah, yes, right here on page 68, that's exactly what I needed yeah. to get me to this project. So, yeah. The kind of books you pull out of your library again and again to say, oh, this one will tell me how to do that or mm-hmm. will inspire me. Well, that's great advice that you're giving these people. Yeah. Well, it's common sense. Yeah, but sometimes though, people, we forget the common sense part of it because yeah. right, we're so excited about the project. You know? Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like you get to be a voice of reason. And, and I hope so. Yeah. I hope so because I have, I have, I'm kind of in a bird's eye view of the entire thing. And, and I think I have good taste in enduring value. Well, yeah, <laughs> um, you've proven, you know, the success yeah, yourself. So, yeah. so, so what, it, see, because what I do, because I have a number of books in print that are all doing well, I can afford to do things that bring me no money whatsoever or that will even compete with me if I think they're of enduring value to the knitting community. So I help other people do sock books. Um, and I, you know, I, I send people to publishers and I connect people. And it's so much fun to be able to be this sort of fairy godmother type of person in the knitting industry because I have, I'm not, I'm not claiming territory. I'm plowing fields for everybody. Mm-hmm. And, and it works just fine for me. And and then I'm in a position to enhance what is out there for everybody. Well, I think that's and wonderful. That's I a great approach. That's a, and wow, that's, I think that's great because uh, there are a lot of people who don't take that approach, and and it's more of a competitive spirit. And I think you're right. I mean, the better the the quality of the work that's out there, we all benefit from yeah. that. We definitely do, and it kind of raises everybody up to the next level. So that's yeah. really wonderful. So if people, and it sounds like it's very very tough. To get into the visionary retreat, but what does it take? Is there a website for well, it? Or? Well, they they would go to my website and go to the um, classes and workshops page, and I have okay. it listed there. And it just says to email me and put visionary retreat in the subject line and okay. ask me to add you. And then I, I send out. It'll be going out within a month, I think. A, a list of five questions. Everybody answers the same five questions. They're limited to two pages total, and then I get them all by the deadline and and sort them out and usually half of them are obviously not going to make it and that makes it a little easier and then the next half are really hard because they you know most of them look like they have a lot of potential and I have to just somehow be really clever and or do my best to figure out which ones are likeliest to you know actually complete a book have the wherewithal to do it in terms of um skills and budget and mm-hmm. um, and have something of great and enduring enduring value to the knitting community. Well, I think that um, people must feel very honored to be selected. Well, they're usually excited and we're all excited to have them <laughs> because they're and they turn out always turn out to be the most I, I end up every year I think, how did I get so lucky to be sitting here with these knitters for a week? Um, it's like the it's like the most amazing creative synergistic um, hotbed of of knitting and everyone everyone helps everyone else sort of open up their book idea so it's I mean I think big publishing companies if they could hire us as a group to to expand on knitting book ideas they, we they should 
we charge, you know, we should charge them $5,000 an hour. It's so exciting. <laughs> wow. And so how much is the retreat? Oh, it's not expensive at all. <laughs> I don't remember, but it's, it's, um, it, it's, I don't remember. It's $350 or something. It's, okay. It's not, ter- it's within reason. I and if you're looking remember. to spend about 20 grand on a book, that's small potatoes. Right? Yeah, yeah. I don't want to take away from, I don't want to use up people's money that they need to, to use for their book. Right, so they can't afford the indexer because they, they want yeah, to really? Sorry. <laughs> no back There's cover. There's no inter- index and it's all because of cat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so it's not a matter of, you know, being able to afford to come. Really, it's so much as having something that makes me Say yes, you should be coming. And what what year or what? Now? It's in February. It's in February. Every it's year. always the week before the Madrona Fiber Arts um, Retreat in Seattle. Okay. Because people tend to like to come here and then go straight over there. That's great. That's yeah. great. So you plan this very very cleverly so people can stay <laughs> and then. Lower oh, I fiber. learned it's, it's our fifth year this coming year, and I've learned that that's what they want to do. We must coordinate. <laughs> now, do you have people that have been there all five years? I do have a couple. That's cool. And, and, and they're actually, those people's books are very long-term books that are um, still still working. So it's kind of a workshop um, where you bring, you people show what they're working on and, and Well, the people and, who return come with the, their book as it is, and they, and they all, you know, decide who's going to help whom um, in the mornings while I'm working with the new people. Oh, I And in the afternoons, the new people present the, their books. They each get a couple of hours their ideas and it's like you know those sponges that are really flat mm-hmm. with French ones and you, they pop way up uh-huh. it's like they, they bring their book in it's like a flat sponge at the end of the two hours it has popped up completely wow and they're grinning how um, wonderful because everyone says you know oh make sure you include this or or hey you could map it this way I mean you can't imagine how it's just and someone records everything for them, so they don't have to write anything down. It's just oh, so it's recorded, so they don't even they can just see yeah. that. Would, that's what would happen to me is I'd be so excited and I get oh, back I to my house and I'd be like, oh my gosh, what did they say? No, we <laughs> I have no have idea. Someone, someone typing madly. Wow. So you've thought of everything. Well, it's evolved. The first year, um, we kind of found our way slowly. I mean, the first year was wonderful, but the second year only had return return people coming and new people, it began to show its real form. And now we're in the fifth year, so it's really cooking. Wow. So how many times have you been approached by major publishers? Oh, lots of times, and I love it because the answer is always no. And will you ever change your mind? Is there any amount? Oh, no. Just no amount of money in the no. world? No. No way. I say, well, how would you Rock like on, to, you know, first of all, pay me ten times as much as you pay everyone else and let me make all the decisions. And they go, well, we can't do that. I said, well, then we can't work together. And you have to keep it in print for my lifetime. Well, we can't do that either. <laughs> so you drive a really hard bargain. That's yeah. really cool. Though. Yeah, but what I tell them, I say, no, I'm not going to write books for you, but I'm happy to um, to consult with you. And, um, and I've never charged any of them. I just say, you know, talk to me. I'm happy to give you ideas and and tell you what I think. Where you know the world wants and so on. So I have a really good relationship with publishers. Well, that's great, but you're just untouchable as far as uh, oh yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm not an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that in my path, uh, one of these days, when I finally uh, carve out some time to sit down and, and do some you know book writing myself, um, mm-hmm. uh, I you know I I want to get a book out there, and I think that I kind of go I float back and forth between the 
because I, I love the independence factor. That is like a dream. I think, wow, you could decide everything. That would be wonderful. But at the same time, like, okay, well, you know, I think what attracts a lot of people to publishers is that you have that prestige of having, if you can get with the biggest publisher and they're like so awesome and they market your book and there's a book tour and all that. But it sounds like you have, you know, you, you tour all around, you teach all over the place. I mean, this is not, it sounds like if you're talented, you're, you're going to get noticed no matter who you publish yeah. with, and you're going to have more money if you do it yourself. Yeah, and, and things turn out, you're not compromising the quality of, of what you intend to put out. Right. Either. I get um, the catalog from um, Pottercraft, which is one of the bigger publishers, mm-hmm. and I just got it, and in there, um, Sally Melville is doing, she's got a new book coming out, and I had a glimpse of it in there, and I... I look at that and I say, this book should actually be with Pottercraft because they're going to be doing things with that that Sally couldn't do on her own. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, and that book is going to be, um, it's going to do incredibly well. She's doing it with her daughter, and her daughter is a designer as well. It's mm-hmm. a, sort of a mother-daughter knitting book. And, you know, her designs are timeless. They're, they're exquisite. They're beautifully done. They're, they're just, the photography is beautiful. And so I look at something like that, and I think I'm so glad Pottercraft is doing this with her and um, that the knitting world will have this. It will be of enduring value, and it will stay in print probably for maybe decades. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are smaller people who who do really wonderful books that will go out of print just because that's what happens. And so I try to distinguish between, you know, where, where different knit designers should go. Some should be going to Interweave or Melanie Faywick is my, actually my very favorite publisher. She never does a book that isn't spectacular. Yeah. It's just so good. But I think I have a good sense of what people are capable of and where they should go with it, either independently or not. Um, so, and I wish that the big publishers would listen to me. I've given them some ideas that I wish they'd go with that I think that they're too big for me to do, but they think they're too big for them to do too. So, yeah. Well, hopefully, uh, sometimes it just takes a different person to hear it from you. you know, yeah. Maybe or the timing. Yeah, the timing, and so perhaps some of those things will come come to light. It sounds like I mean, you have just had a whirlwind because your first book was published. What year was that again? 2001. 2001. We're in 2008, and now you are well-known. And, and I seem to be. You know? Yeah. And how, how has that changed your life? Because, I mean, you're a well, woman living not, on Well, it, it not, doesn't really change it at all. It just makes it sillier. Because <laughs> when you're out in public, people come up to me and, you know, they, they say silly, you know, they... Okay, here's the silliest one of all. Um, I was at TNNA, which is the big industry show, right, about right. a year ago. Mm-hmm. At, at actually the Pottercraft party. They have this great party every year with incredible food, and all would go. And I, I left the, the room to go to the bathroom, and it, uh, someone else walked that way with me. And as we were walking, she looked at She goes, Oh, you're Cat Gordy. And I said, Yes. And she said, Oh, well, well, you know, big celebrity thing. And I said, I'm just like you. It's no big deal. We're both knitters. And we ended up going in neighboring stall. <laughs> and, and she's in the next stall saying, I can't believe I'm peeing right next to Cat Forty. <laughs> and I, I said, um, <laughs> we're just alike. We're both using toilet paper. We're both sitting down. <laughs> and we walked back out of there, um, continuing our argument with me saying we are just alike. And her saying, oh, no, you're Cat Forty. And it's all so silly. Right. Um, 
<laughs> Stephanie Pearl McPhee can taught me that, that. She had a, um, a knitter who passed her a copy of her book under the toilet, you know, under the um, wall. Of the you are kidding me. Said, for Would you sign this for me? Oh well, well, Stephanie's peeing, so she definitely topped me with that. Did she sign it or did she um, wait? I, oh, you know, I forgot to ask. Her. You know, when I interview her, I'm going to ask her how that <laughs> do, ended. Please because do. That, is, because that is really, that's something else. I, I think, see, I mean, with all due respect to Stephanie, I think I'd wait until she had washed her hands. I, I think she probably did. She's pretty sensible. <laughs> no, it's just kind of fun. No, it's really funny to me that people would be, you know, that that's interesting. But that's well, how you see, know you've it, made it big. It, it just shows you how people um, externalize celebrity yeah. and, and diminish themselves. And and my what I always do when people you know, come up to me and act that way is I, I, I'm very, I don't know what exactly I do, but it's very easy to pop that bubble and let them know that, hey, we're, we're just fine here together. And, yeah. And then it gives them back their their own intelligence and, and balances things back out. So so um, mainly, mainly being famous, what it's done is it's allowed me to do more good in the knitting world, to, to connect people and, and have people take my ideas and go with them. Well, that's great. That's yeah. really great. So is there anybody out there that makes you, um, you know, go into a tizzy about, like, oh, you're so cool, you're so-and-so? <laughs> well, Lucy Neathy is one of my great, great heroes. Yeah. Um, have you ever interviewed her? I have not. She's fantastic. She should be on your list. Um, and we're, we've become good friends. And one thing I really, really like about Lucy, because we're alike this way, she and I refuse to either to really read or, or find out what the other one is doing and has come up with because both of us want to do it ourselves. We don't want to risk not coming across that independently. So I might tell her, I might say, Lucy, I came up with this idea, and I'll just give her the vague hint of it because she doesn't want me to tell her how it's done. Oh, that's so cool. And I just love that because we, we, we both really, are, you know, we're alike that way. It's so cool. And then there's someone else who's not so well-known, Lynn Barr, who wrote Knitting New Scarves, a Melanie Fawick book. Yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. That is a groundbreaking book. She is brilliant. She lives in Maine, She way off in a rural area where she doesn't have much Internet connectivity, so she can't even go online and see what's happening in the world. And on purpose, she doesn't look at other knitting books much She want, because she wants to not be influenced. She wants to sort of investigate things herself, mm-hmm. herself. And in that book, she has done amazing things. And she has another book coming out on reversible knitting, probably, I guess, in a year or so. With Oh, Taylor. reversible knitting. That and sounds so fabulous. She, you know, she's not out teaching, or I don't think she even wants to teach. But I, I highly recommend her, her first book and for people to wait and look for her second book. Okay. She, I need to talk she to has, She's just... Um, you know, your mouth hangs open when you see the things she's doing. They're things that no one has thought of because they were influenced, and she's not influenced. So that's, I, yeah, it sounds like there's a, that's one of the that's one of the scary parts of the internet. Is like it seems that like you think, oh, I got this great idea, and then you Google it, and you're like, oh, maybe not. You know, but and then people stop right there where really they should keep pushing it and, and working on the idea and continue to develop it. And I think the approach that Lynn takes probably is very beneficial to her work. Then where she kind of just pulls up and does her knitting and doesn't try to research yeah. what everyone else is doing. It works really well for her. And yeah. I have immense respect for her to be doing it that way, too. Well, I was in the um, knit shop here in Grand Rapids, uh, City Knitting, where you're going to be visiting. Mm-hmm. And um, the 
one of the questions, because I said, okay, does anybody have any questions for Kat? I'm going to talk to her in like an hour, so bank it real Good. quick, you know. Um, and one of the things we want to know is like what knitting brains you hang out with. And it sounds like you've named kind of two that you are in, you know, they're in your kind of knitting circle. Yeah. Um, who, are, who are some of the other people? It sounds like you've Well, I really like Stephanie. Debbie New. Um, Debbie and I were stuck in an airport alone together about three months ago for an hour or so. And we, I can no longer remember quite what we were talking about, but it had to do with a Mobius and a Klein bottle and some other strange way of making all that happen in knitting. And finally her plane left before mine and, and I watched her go down the, the runway with, you know, before we finished our last sentence. But she's, she, I think she's the most intelligent knitter alive. Um, Lucy, I, I love being around Lucy. Nancy Bush. And Nancy Bush, Anna Zilborg, and Priscilla Gibson Roberts. Of those three, I've only met Nancy. And I consider the three of them to be um, pioneers and and people who have, have sort of paved the path for the rest of us to go where we've gone with both socks and knitting intelligently and, mm-hmm. and looking at our knitting and seeing what it's doing. And I have immense gratitude to those three women. Well, so it sounds like through your books, you've really been able to connect when you go to, you know, TNNA and some of these other, you know, stitches and all these places um, or, or conventions and trade shows that you're able to connect with these people that you might have read their books or heard of them or something. Yeah, yeah. I, it's it's pretty fun. The other fun thing of being, you know, so-called famous is you get to meet all the other people. And if you're interested in them, you get to, you know, really sit with them and talk and, and enjoy how they think. Yeah. Well, and I did want to talk, and I know we've gone off in so many directions here, and I just find you to be completely fascinating, so, um, you know, bear with me here. Sure. A lot of ground to cover, but um, I have a copy of A Second uh, Treasury of Magical Knitting here mm-hmm. in my hands, and, um, you know, I've paged through this book several times, and I haven't actually attempted anything yet. I- I'm someone you have to keep in mind. I was terrible in math, and I even struggled in geometry just a bit, um, because mm-hmm. I think I went into it thinking I was just terrible at math, and I was never right. going to get better. And I didn't have the teacher that you had, and I think that's um, probably one of the biggest differences. But the stuff that you're doing, I mean, can you explain, and I know you do write a little bit about this, but every mm-hmm. listener might not have the benefit of a copy of your book right in front of them. Um, the, the Mobius knitting that you started doing, what led you to really do that? And it kind of, instead of, uh, you know, just doing the, the usual knitting. As a teacher, I had used the Mobius to captivate kids. Um, even if I weren't teaching math, I would use it to captivate them. Anyone who's listening who never, doesn't know what a Mobius is, find a piece of paper and cut a strip lengthwise, which will probably be 11 inches long because you've got 8.5 by 11-inch mm-hmm. paper handy. Um, cut it you know, about an inch wide or so. Hold it together to make a circle out of it. <clears throat> and then take a piece of tape, and before taping the ends together, turn one end upside down and then tape it together. It is now a Mobius, and it now has a continuous surface and one continuous edge. Before it had, if it were taped as a circle, it would have a top edge and a bottom edge, an inside and an outside. <laughs> but when you turned one edge upside down before taping it together, you did the most amazing magic trick possible, which is to make something disappear. You made the, an edge disappear and a surface disappear. Because now if you trace your finger around it or write around it, you find that you have not an 11-inch length, but a 22-inch length, which keeps streaming back into itself. And you have a 22-inch edge, which keeps 
running into itself. So you could run a train on the surface forever and ever and ever. Um, it's and, like magic. Yeah, and, and the train would seem to go inside and outside, but it would never jump from one to the other. So, um, and the other thing is that the, this is eternally graceful. You cannot make a Mobius that does not look graceful, it knitted or paper. It's kind of a miracle. And yeah, it so, is a great shape. Yeah, and yeah. it's just fabulous. And so I knew about the Mobius, and there are lots of tricks you can do with it in terms of cutting it lengthwise and having strange things happen. And I had never knit one. Um, Elizabeth Zimmerman explored them, but she knit a long um, garter stitch rectangle and grafted it together as the paper one is put together. And she never did what I call, what do I call it, a real live Mobius, I guess. In about 19, oh gosh, no, 2000, I don't know, somewhere, about eight years ago, something like that, in Spinoff Magazine, Rita Buchanan wrote an article about knitting a Mobius on one long circular, except it wasn't a very long circular needle. I think she used a 36-inch needle. (laughs) And she used pencil roving to knit with, which falls apart rather easily. And But she came up with a way of, um, her way, one way of casting on and getting the thing into a Mobius where you would start knitting and go from the inside out and it would turn into a Mobius, a real live Mobius. But the cast on was, I thought, a bit gruesome. It took a long time to do and if the phone rang, you kind of were stuck and... And it, it was not a quick start. And, and also the needle was too short to make it easy. And so I, I did one or two and thought, this is wonderful, but I hate the beginning and there must be a better way. And it wasn't until a number of years later that I, I literally jumped out of bed in the middle of the night one night with the realization of how to um, do it very quickly and a, a di- completely different cast on. And, and it, I can do I can cast on in 60 seconds I can do it behind my back because it's not very hard um, and then you begin knitting right away and so um, when I figured that out I, I knit only what I call Moby I because you can't say Moby S's very well <laughs> um, for a whole year I, I couldn't stop and I just started exploring what you could do beyond knitting a basic Mobius loop to wear as a scarf and I found many many things you could do um, Basically, you can distort the surface any way you want. And as long as you don't make a new hole or a new um, bridge, it's still a Mobius. And so you can um, you can put waist yarn in and then pick it up and then knit a pouch or a bowl or a sleeve with gloves on the end. You, you can do amazing things. So I, I just couldn't stop. Well, the results are fabulous because um, to have... I mean, these are definitely a collection of patterns that you just don't see any place else. And it's, right. And it, it really is inspiring because I think it it must be, you know, I haven't made my first Mobius yet, but I, I need to. And Well, beware. It's addictive. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, yeah, that, that's actually, to be honest, that's kind of what has slowed me down because I'm, I don't do anything in moderation, you know, when I get into oh, the you're, craft kick. You maybe shouldn't do yeah, it. <laughs> yeah, I think, well, and my, and my children, too, are at that state. They're two and four right now. So, um, oh. you know, I... Uh, if I'm engrossed, and I get engrossed in a project, and then I don't realize, oh, they've just emptied all the kitchen cupboards, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's like, oh, how did that happen? You know, that sounds like a fun room. house. My husband will come into the room, and I'll be like, oh, oh, goodness, you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh. Yeah, so it's, but no, I definitely, I mean, I think it's just wonderful the things that you've been able to do, and it's not, it, it looks like, I can tell that you've had fun. 
too. Oh, yeah. So these books were not like, you know, not like it's all a cakewalk, but it sounds like you really, just in the way you write, too, you can tell Thank that you're you. enjoying yourself. And that's just wonderful, and that makes it fun for the knitters who pick yeah. this up. And, uh, you know, I know that the, the workshop here, I think there might be one one seat left, which oh. they expect to fill very quickly. Um, in fact, when I write about you in the paper, it'll be the weekend before your visit. Oh, good. And um, there, I guess you're, you're having a public signing of your book. Yeah. And so we'll be inviting people to that. It, we're pretty certain that by that time, it sounds like the workshop will be full. So I'm not going to give anybody false hope that they're going to get mm-hmm. into your workshop. But maybe then there'll be a, um, a, a call to have you back for an encore here. Do you find that this happens every place you go? I, I almost always sell out. That's awesome. Um, yeah. And I'm booked into 2010, which I, is wow. just as far as I'm willing to go because um, I'm not sure we're going to make it to 2010. I hope we make it. You know? yeah, I, I think we will. I think but. the more people that knit, and I kind of think, I, I don't know. Exactly. You're, in a, you're actually in a better position than I am to maybe bring this to the United Nations, but um, I really <laughs> think that. We could we could really solve some issues if everybody at the United Nations was knitting while the discussions were happening. You know, when it's your turn to just listen. You know, I agree completely because I think it's a peaceful thing, and people would be in a whole different frame of mind. Um, I know. It, it, what's unfortunate is that that's true. I believe it's true that that would really shift everything, but only knitters um, realize that. Right, and there aren't enough knitters in office. In fact, I, I, I can't don't really know any name, I can't name, Yeah, I can't really name any. I just, I just figured I'd leave it open because if I say there are no knitters in office, and someone yeah. would call me and say, or email me and say, actually, uh, but yeah, if there's some knitters in office, I'd like to know about them um, and like to see I them know. knitting more in public. But um, yeah. yeah, I think yeah, it would be nice to have more of that done. Well, I, and that actually brings me to something I want to talk to you about. I understand that you work with your daughter. She is kind of helping you manage she, your business. She, she's my business manager and bookkeeper. That's great. Now, how, uh, how old is your daughter now? She's 20, almost 25. Okay. So how long has she been managing your Well, your about two years. Um, she was sort of, I, she was sort of creeping up on it. And I finally, one day we said, I need to just hand the whole thing over to you. And the minute I did, it, it just shifted everything for me because all I have to do now is be creative and she does all that boring stuff, and she loves it. I think she's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> she just there's nothing she loves more than than managing and bookkeeping and getting things organized and getting them right. And well, that's I am great. So lucky. Yeah, that's great that you can work with your daughter, and you I know, because some people can't work with their kids. You know, moms yeah. and daughters don't always, um, you know. Click, but it sounds like you. It's a great situation, and yeah. Well, she's very independent of me, but but she's um, she's very. Good. We have a really good working relationship. Oh, that's wonderful. Does she and knit as well? Does she Pardon? knit too? Does she knit too? She doesn't knit. She learned when she was young, but she didn't care much. She sometimes says that maybe when she's older, she'll take up knitting. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, if, if both of you just wanted to be creative, then that would be where the problem would come in, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so it sounds like it, it's a great a great pairing yeah. there. Yeah. Even if she never knits, I'm fine with her. She, I love her. So is this a full-time job for her? Is no, it isn't. She um She's actually she had a full time job and another part time job plus me. Wow! And, but now she's going to be going back to school to become a CPA. Oh wow! So and she has a um, a fifteen month old son, who is my 
adored Charlie, my little grandson. Oh, congratulations. So she has her hands both. full. Yeah. That's one, so are you doing a lot of baby knitting? Um, I, I was, but um, right now I haven't lately because it's summer, and I'm so busy with other things. But it, he's had a lot of socks. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I would imagine Except so. Except he takes off his hat. Most babies do like to take off their hats. I know. I yeah, know, but they're sad. so cute in the two seconds that they keep their I hat know. <laughs> yeah, so you have one one daughter and one grandson so yeah. far? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. That's wonderful. Yeah. So what can we expect next? Is it, you know, I know Well, you... the next book is, um, it's the next New Pathways, but it'll be focused on Houdini socks, which appeared in the Twist Collective. Oh. Which probably a lot of do you know about that? I've heard some about it. I don't know. Oh, every- you need to, it's twistcollective.com. dot com. It's a new knitting magazine. That's oh, you know, I did. Yeah, yeah. The, the yeah. Mag- yeah. And and the Houdini socks are in there, and they're um, it, it's it's simply another way to go about knitting socks. And I've I've only revealed the rudiments in there, but the book will people will be able to fit socks to their feet with hardly ever even having a number. They'll be, use a string and fold it in certain ways to take measurements. Wow. Because you know how knitters are afraid of math? Yeah, I am I'm one going of to them. take pity on them. Yeah, we're making it easy. <laughs> Instead of arguing with them, so I'm going to kind of, do it their way. It's kind of like remedial knitting in a way? Well, no, no, because it's, <laughs> it's not remedial knitting, but it's knitting unthreatening knitting. Okay. So I, I'm determined to make this my simplest book of all. So it's not going to be scary at all? No, this will be the book that's not scary. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I like the way you put that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's one of those things where I, I look at patterns and I'm like, oh, goodness, I have to calculate, you know. Well, and I think one of the cool things, and we didn't talk about this, but basically you blew up the, the way people used to make socks. Because it's like, oh, yeah. what guts it, you know, and you're, you just kind of, you know, continue. I just found out we didn't have to follow those rules at all. Yeah. I never had to. And bless you for that. Because Thank if you. I remember it correctly, you were sitting, were you sitting outside? I was, yeah, under a giant cottonwood tree in Indiana. And if, what were you doing in Indiana? Just um, it was in between teaching. Oh, okay. Events. Okay. And, and so you, re- recovering from, recovering from, <laughs> from working hard. <laughs> and so what year was this when you decided? Well, it was about two and a half years ago. Wow. And Not that long ago. I had already discovered some of the material, but I hadn't discovered how completely liberated the entire thing was, and that was what I discovered under that tree. And for the folks at home who have not, maybe have not read this in your book, um, where you describe it, and it's a beautiful scene because you saw, saw a bird basically that you had never seen before. Reminding a cardinal. You of a cardinal. And, and while this bird kind of swoops in at the same moment, it's almost as if it brought you a gift of this knowledge. <laughs> that, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and you just basically discover that you don't have to do your shaping in any particular right, spot. Right, it can go anywhere in which that Which I think completely, area. I mean, you. I, I kind of, you know, my response to that was like, I felt like I put the book down and I was enlightened. <laughs> like, it was like, oh, that's it wonderful. It was just like you hear the organ play, and I'm like, yeah. I hope the world doesn't end now <laughs> I, I know, know this. It, it was actually scary to discover that because it, it was blew it so wide open. I thought, oh, my God. This is too big. Yeah, well, and it just sounds. I mean, do you do you ever sleep, or do you have these ideas coming? Oh, I do time? sleep, <laughs> but I but I'm but I do jump out of bed in the middle of the night. Most of my good ideas came from jumping out of bed in the middle of the night. So you to make sure the floor is clear, like so you don't trip on a. That's a good point. Or something. My goodness. <laughs> I don't leave tacks on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> 
people shouldn't do that even if they don't jump out of bed. No, you're right. <laughs> That's so funny. So you you just kind of um, well, and what do you do? What do you think it is about about you? Are you just open to? I, well, the I'm open. I think it's that I'm kind of childlike. Um, I'm I'm by nature a happy person, and I find what someone I worked with once sort of um, accused me of being incredibly easily amused. <laughs> I'm easily amused by almost by the most ordinary things. So I, I, um, I, I just I'm interested in in practically everything around me and and look at it curiously. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of the way I'm put together, and it, I'm really fortunate because it makes life rather pleasant, and I can kind of go anywhere and be happy because mm-hmm. I like I I I I, I, I like what it, I like where I am. I'm, I don't fight life very much. Yeah, well, that's great, and it sounds like you really do need to have a, a personality like that to be open to these ideas and yeah. not fight your the idea. You know, where yeah. people might say, you know, I don't think this is going to work. You keep you stick with it. Oh, I love it when someone says something won't work. Then I'm going to find out how to make it work. <laughs> <laughs> You'll go sleep the next sixteen days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. the best way to get my attention. Say, so, you know, I don't think this could ever work. Yeah, this is a challenge. I think that far exceeds your capabilities, but you know, <laughs> that's so. Fun. Well, yeah, and I think that it's been. I mean, the amount of people that you've inspired. I mean, I know just when I you know surf around and you know you hear you, just what people are saying about your work. I mean, they and when they say, oh, I met Cat at Stitches, or you know, and you have some big name people that are blogging about meeting you in person for the first time and that's you know when you have the respect of all the other people that have the respect of the knitting community that's really quite fabulous and but i know that doesn't seem to be what you're really striving for you're just doing no, your thing no. you know um it's useful because it it puts me next to a lot of people who i can then meet and, <laughs> and interact with but what i'm really interested in is um is being curious about things and and being able to, I, I'm able to be with people and very quickly kind of have them feel like, oh, I'm like that too. Mm-hmm. I, I can notice things and figure them out and investigate them. I just like to kind of shift the thing over to the person. And I I teach about a 1,000 people a year, and I can do that with pretty much everyone I teach. And I do it kind of invisibly. It's not like I say, now I'm going to do this. Now I will <laughs> empower you in your happens. life. <laughs> it's just it's the result of the interaction. Yeah. Well, and that, to me, is is the real beauty of what I've, and what I seem to be doing with my life. Well, it's got to be a real kick to send people out the door and have them feel like, I can do this, and feeling yeah. empowered and smart about their knitting. Yeah. You know, because the stuff, yeah. that the, the, the projects that you've created and the patterns you have out there, are, are, are they're they're challenging in the sense that it's not just knit back and forth and call it a day. You know, I mean, you have right. to kind of pay attention. But, um, you know, I, I like how you kind of ease people into it, you know, whether it's a sock pattern where you say, here, make these miniature socks first, like baby yeah. socks, and make sure you follow these directions and then jump into any of the other patterns in the book. Right. It kind of eases people in. You're not setting them up for failure. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's an impressive uh, it's impressive books, and especially, and I think it's, Ten times, I mean, you deserve ten times the credit and adulation because you've you've done this yourself independently, and that's got to rock at the end of the day to know that you did it. Uh, I mean, you did it yourself. I mean, you have people, you know, of course, helping you with parts yeah. of the process, but that's really great and inspiring that you've been able to Thank achieve you. success you. on your own. 
So, so for the folks here in Grand Rapids that are eagerly anticipating your arrival, um, <laughs> what what can they expect in your workshop? What and well, um, they can expect to have their brains kind of sizzle a little, <laughs> but but to be helped um, in every way they need to be helped. And I, I give lots of one-on-one attention. Um, they'll be encouraged to do what they want to do in terms of the patterns I offer and so on, to, to you know, take the easy route or challenging route, whatever they want to do, and to really learn a lot. And they'll learn things that aren't even in the class description. There's some things I've techniques I've come up with recently that I just want out there in the knitting world. So I will teach them some extra things as well that will really make it things that might have irritated them about knitting forever won't irritate them any longer. Wow. Um, for instance, I have a way of making the SSK line look exactly like the knit two together line. Interesting. Way, I have one thing that takes out the flack and the other thing that takes out the wobble. And I've been teaching that, and people are, are thrilled when they get it because it's a small thing but makes all the difference in the world. Oh, yeah. So I, so I love to teach, and then I t- tell them, you go teach other people this. Get it out there. So they'll they'll have, and we have a great time. We laugh a lot, and um, it's I, I enjoy it exactly as much as everybody else. Oh, that's great. Yeah. It's wonderful. So how long will you be in town? I'm teaching for two days, I believe. And then I'm going to um, Lansing to teach at Threadbare for three days. Okay. And before that, I'm at Stitches in Chicago. Okay, so you just kind of make a Midwest tour here. Yeah. Well, that's great. That's wonderful. And they can look on my website um, in the events and workshops page to see where I've been, where I'm going, and all that. If they some people sometimes travel. Yeah, if they're having to be a know. trip of it. Yeah, well, that's wonderful. And so you're you're uh, well, yeah. I think it'll be really the people here. Like I said, I mean, just being in the knit shop, it's been interesting to see how people are excited. Very, very. I'm excited. looking forward to being there. Laura Lee um, is great, and I'm really looking forward to spending time with her. Yeah, well, I think it's going to be fun to meet you in person, and um, I really appreciate. Will it. Will I time. meet you? I hope. Yeah, I will make oh, sure that I show up. Yeah, I bring I your was, kids. I was. <laughs> oh my gosh! I seriously, when I go into Laura Lee's shop, I have to kind of go quickly. I'll say, "Okay, girls, we're going to go, and we're going to get this size needle, and then we're going to come out." Um, I'm not kidding. One time, there, there's a little rocking chair, and so they wanted to sit in the rocking chair. I said, okay, is it okay, uh-huh. Laura Lee? So they sat in the rocking chair. They were taking turns, and everything was great. And then I said, okay, well, we've got to go over here to the sock yarn. I didn't want to leave them unattended in yeah. the rocking chair. So we went over to the sock yarn. I'm not kidding. I turned my back for two seconds, and my youngest had completely unloaded a whole bin of sock yarn onto the floor. Like, And it was in a, <laughs> a neat little pile. She's organizing it by color, and I thought, oh, my That's goodness. That's wonderful. But it was working in your own shop. <laughs> um, yeah, so I might not have my girls with me. <laughs> well, I'll miss them if you don't bring them, but I'll understand. <laughs> <laughs> because the other people there might not be all that I know. Good, but I will um, surely make a point to stop by. And, and visit with you because I great. think it would be great. To I'll look forward to that. So I will let you get on with your life today. Thank okay. you very much. You're welcome, Jennifer, and I'll look forward to meeting you. Yeah, I look forward to seeing you as well. Wow, wasn't that fun? Kat is a really great storyteller and really funny. If you go to the website, craftsanity.com, I'm going to have links to catbordy.com and some of the free things that she has available on her website, so be sure to check that out. A reminder also, Tuesday night, the 26th from 8 to 9 at City Knitting, you can get books signed and meet Cat Bordy from 8 to 9 in the evening. And I have plans to go out and meet Cat and all the other cool knitters who are going to be going to that event. 
This week's sponsor, Spray Paint for Fabric. A special thanks to them for sponsoring this week's show. And what they want to do for you is give you a chance to win some of this fast-drying fabric paint. You can use it to do everything from stencil a t-shirt to change the color of your couch. And they even have a product that you can uh, repair black shoes or purses. It kind of just touches things up. They're offering to give some away. So what I'm asking you to do is if you want to go to the website, craftsanity.com, and under this week's show... The first six people to post what they want to do with fabric spray paint. Just tell me what your project is all about. And uh, the first six people to do that will win. If you want to know more information about this, check out spraypaintforfabric.com. Thanks again to the folks over there for sponsoring the show. I really appreciate it. And thanks to all of you for tuning in and Kat for being such a great guest. I'm going to have links also on craftsanity.com to my Running With Needles blog over at the Grand Rapids Press, which is basically uh, due to the other things I have to do at work. This craft column is just a fraction of my job, so I don't blog every single day. I blog most often on craftsanity.com. That's my primary crafting outlet. But I do write a weekly column for the Grand Rapids Press here in town, and Kat was a subject of my column this week. If you're interested in reading the article about her and maybe uh, – reading some of the other articles I've written about crafters in town. I welcome you to check that out. Okay, so that's it for this week's show. I will have a little mini after show for you if you want to stick around after the music plays. If not, I wish you well, and I will see you back here soon with another episode of Craft Sanity. In the meantime, Craft Sanity, my friends, it works for me. Thanks for listening to the Craft Sanity Podcast with Jennifer Ackerman Haywood. Visit CraftSanity.com for more information about today's guests and links to subscribing to the podcast. Want to support the show? Follow the link to vote for Craft Sanity on Podcast Alley once a month. You can also make a donation or buy goods at the Craft Sanity store. Have a suggestion for a future guest or have other feedback? Email Jennifer at CraftSanity.com. Thanks again for listening to Craft Sanity. Hi, everyone. Thanks for sticking around for the after show. I appreciate it. I just want to tell you about a new website that I just launched last week with Bev Lang. It's called postedstitches.com, and basically this is a monthly art challenge where Bev, who lives over in Australia, and uh, and I, we exchange packages of fabric and little beads and buttons and ribbon and so forth, and we then make these 10 by 10 art quilts with the supplies that we've received from the other person. So we are allowed to use, we have pretty loose rules where you can, you know, grab something from your own stash or, you know, just use, you can mix in your own stuff. But we primarily try to make these quilts, the challenge of it is to make the quilt with the fabric that you're sent. So we've been doing this for, we're in our third month now, it was June when we started, and we just you know, have finally kind of gotten things up and running with the website and we're kind of gradually, it's pretty soon it's going to be completely up to date. It's been really fun and I just, you know, this is a, an opportunity that I really wanted to um, to kind of create for myself to make art and make art on a semi-regular basis because most of the stuff I make for work or for this podcast or just in my daily life is th- are pra- crafty things that are practical, whether I'm sewing, you know, an apron or I'm making you know, some kind of um, crocheted item to use around the house or give away as a gift. And I really wanted to see what happens because that's one of the beautiful things about art and craft is when you don't use a pattern and you don't, you know, you're not doing something that's already been done. You're trying to do something 
totally new that maybe you don't don't completely plan out the project. You just have some supplies in front of you and you create something. I love that and I love the mystery of it. The surprise at the end because you're not quite sure exactly how it's going to turn out. At least that's the way I approach art. Some people probably plan a lot more than I do. But anyway, I wanted to just invite you to check out postedstitches.com and I hope it inspires you to, you know, move those artistic goals you have for yourself up on your to-do list and uh, give it a shot. And uh, so let us know what you think. Bev is great at drawing. She has these cute little illustrations that she has um, kindly supplied and we are using those to illustrate the website, which I think is really fun. I love the header. She has a, a picture of us stitching sitting on mailboxes in our respective countries, which <laughs> I think is wonderful. And thanks to technology, we're able to do our big reveal. So when our quilts are done each month, we get on Skype and use the cameras on our MacBooks and we show each other the quilts that we've made for that month. And that has been really fun. You know, I even got to meet her husband that way and she meet, met my husband that way just by, you know, having these cameras like showing a little snippet of our life where we are. So it's been really interesting and it's just, you know, I'm just so grateful for the people that I've met through this podcast. I mean, Bev is is one of many that I've got a chance to either send email with or exchange letters with, or, you know, I think I've even talked to a couple of you on the phone. Um, You know, it's been really interesting, just the listeners out there and the people who have been on the show. And I just am so thankful that I've had this opportunity to connect with you that way. So, Posted stitches is just one more way that I'm trying to connect with the world and express myself as a, um, I guess you'd say budding artist. I'm, I'm trying on that title. I think I'll eventually grow into it, hopefully, <laughs> if I keep it up. But anyway, you guys have a wonderful week. Maybe make an art project this week. If you, you, know, you don't consider yourself an artist, well, that can change today. Hey, if I can get out there and do something called art, I think you can do it too because um, you know, I can't really draw very well, and that doesn't stop me. I made a sock monkey apron, like, last week, and I can't draw a sock monkey, so imagine how how inventive I had to be to do that. <laughs> but, you know, you can always find a way around your limitations, so keep that in mind. And uh, check out craftsanity.com, and I have links there to posted stitches and other the things that are going on. So, um, you know, and as usual, if you have any ideas, comments, or suggestions for me, feel free to send me a note. Uh, I'll... I love to read my email, and I actually have more time to read my email this week because I'll be on my vacation from work. So, okay, I'm going to let you go now. Thanks for listening. I'll be back soon.